So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, coming to the end here of Paul's brief letter to the church in Philippi, and Paul is going to talk about this whole arena of giving uh, that uh, Angela read for us out of 2 Corinthians 8. A lot of uh, talk about economic issues in our day. Uh, Rising inflation, gas prices have skyrocketed 44%. Food prices are up 9.5%. My wife took one look at the price of eggs this week and decided we would not have eggs this week. $3.69 or something, a dozen, and we don't generally roll that way. Um, I actually had an offer in between services for some homegrown, fresh eggs. So... uh, don't, don't feel sorry for us. Our needs are met. We're, we're not going hungry, but uh, we're making some tactical decisions about the, the uh, grocery budget, right? Used vehicle prices are up 23% for the year. Supply chain issues have now resulted in a critical shortage of things like baby formula, right? That's a pretty big issue uh, right now. Uh, and many are predicting a, a sort of a looming economic recession, So a lot of talk out there, a lot of concern, depending on who you talk to, and maybe something ranging from, you know, frustration, disgust, to anxiety, right? I don't know where you're at on that continuum, but it's on our minds uh, in these days. But I'm going to suggest to you that there's a bigger, more far-reaching economic crisis facing the church, and it's the decline in giving, the decline in generosity, Um, Randy Alcorn reflected on it in 1989 in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, a tremendous resource. He said, the percentage of income Christians give away has been declining for 30 years. In fact, dollar for dollar, the average American gave more during the Great Depression than today. Uh, Joe Stoll, in 2001, uh, he was then the president of Moody Bible Institute. He expressed a similar sentiment in the midst of that time of recession. Uh, 9-11 had taken place. There was a lot of economic upheaval and a a precipitous decline in giving. And uh, I clipped the article. This was back in the the early part of of, uh, 2002, But that little article stuck in my mind, and I've kept it ever since. He includes a little chart here of giving. The bottom line is, the more people make, the less they give. Uh, 8% who make up to $20,000 gave 10%. 5% of those who made $20,000 to $40,000 gave 10%. 4% making 40 to 60,000 gave 10%. 2% making 60,000 to 75,000 gave 10%. So uh, obviously people who have resources tend to give more, but not in terms of percentages. Uh, it goes back to what Jesus pointed out about the widow, right, who gave her, her mite, her copper coins. People were giving bigger gifts, but Jesus pointed to her and said, this woman has given more than all the rest because she gave all that she had, right? She gave sacrificially. And so what he's tying into here is uh, this tendency for our possessions to possess us, right? 
to uh, materialism tends to grow in our hearts. And he says you don't have to be a theologian to realize that there's something radically wrong with this picture, right? So again, that was 2001. Um, he called it again the real economic crisis. Uh, more recently, Frank Grieve wrote about this, uh, citing statistics from the U.S. Bureau of Labor. Uh, he found that the poorest one-fifth of American households contributed an average of 4.3% of their income to charitable organizations, while the richest fifth donated 2.1% of their income. So the same principle. The more people make, the less they give in terms of percentage. He says the discrepancy is even more noteworthy because charitable gifts from the poor are effectively not tax-deductible because the poor don't earn enough to justify itemizing their deductions. So it's actually more impressive. There's no real benefit for uh, those in lower-income brackets to give because they don't get any tax incentives, right? The ranks of the poor also include a large number of women who tend to be more generous than men. Right? There's there's another good convicting element for us guys. Uh, Women tend to be more generous. He goes on to say, Moreover, the working poor, a disproportionate number of whom are recent immigrants, are America's most generous group. So this is an interesting uh, challenge for us. Uh, I don't believe the statistics hold true uh, in terms of this local congregation. Uh, You have been a model of generosity and and faithfulness, and so I I don't come with a particular axe to grind, but there's been, when you step back and look at the church in the 21st century, there has been a historic decline in giving and generosity. And uh, Paul is going to write here to the church in Philippi, um, and he's going to challenge their thinking as it relates to giving. So again, if you haven't been with us for our series, just a quick recap of the backdrop here. Uh, Paul is in prison. He is in prison in Rome. And unlike our prisons today, all of his various needs would not have been met. There was no cable television. There was no, uh, you know, outside exercise time. There was no cafeteria. And so if you wanted to have your basic needs met, you needed to have benefactors and those who would help you. And so the church in Philippi, nearly 4,000 miles away, sent Epaphroditus as a messenger, with a financial gift for Paul. And this little letter is Paul's thank you note. He's responding to that gift. And again, he is going to reflect, not just to say thank you, but he's going to reflect on the nature of the gift, of of what really happens when we give. This is the real, I think, benefit for us uh, to, to shape our view, our worldview, as it relates to giving. And my contention this morning is going to be that giving is about more than the money. It's not just a monetary transaction that happens when we give. There's five distinct perspectives that Paul brings to the table in this text. So uh, let's look uh, uh, 
Philippians 4. We're going to be focusing on verses 15 through 18, but I want to go ahead and just pick up in verse 10. Philippians 4.10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So five perspectives, five things that are happening when we give. Number one, we express solidarity and commitment. We express solidarity and commitment. So this church in Philippi had given Paul a generous financial gift, and Paul makes it a point to say that it was not the first time. Uh, matter of fact, he says, when I left Macedonia, uh, you were the, 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 the one church that supported me. And he uses a very interesting expression here. Uh, in the beginning of the gospel, you entered into partnership with me. You gave to support me. In the beginning of the gospel. Uh, the NIV brings this across, I think, in a, in a very helpful way, gives us the sense. It says, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel. Right? So this church, uh, Paul established this church. We can read about it in Acts chapter 16. Lives were transformed by the grace of God. Uh, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, the beginnings of a new church. And from the very beginning, this church was marked by generosity. So when they left Macedonia, that's the surrounding region, uh, this church uh, supported Paul. Matter of fact, when Paul left Macedonia, when he left Philippi, he went to Corinth. So he went to wealthy Corinth, and it was the poor people of Macedonia, the poor people of Philippi, who supported his ministry to wealthy Corinth. And Paul, as he wrote to the church in Corinth, talked about this. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's Philippi. For in a very severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So he's writing to the church in Corinth, the wealthy church in Corinth, and he's bragging about the people of Philippi. A little later in the letter, he says, And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia, from Philippi, supplied my need. 
So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So this comes up again and again and again that this church in Philippi had become known for their generosity. Paul adds here uh, in verse 16, even in Thessalonica. So he says, even before I left Macedonia, Thessalonica was a sister city to Philippi in the region of Macedonia. And he says, even in Thessalonica, even before I left the region, you had supported us on more than one occasion. So at least four times, Paul had received generous financial gifts from the church in Philippi. But notice how Paul characterizes their gift. He says, no other church, this is verse 15, no other church entered into partnership with me. This is the word koinonia or fellowship. It means to share in common or to have an active, vital participation. Paul used the same word in verse 14 when he said, it was kind of you to share my trouble. So Paul's sitting in a prison in Rome. And in some sense, these believers in Philippi entered into his suffering. They locked arms with him. They shared in his suffering. How did they do that? By their giving, right? So when we give, we express solidarity and commitment. The Bible calls us into committed relationships. We might speak of friendships within the church, but undoubtedly our relationship goes beyond friendship, or it should. (laughs) The Bible speaks more often of sibling relationships, right? Brothers and sisters, the type of people that you can't get away from even when you want to, right? There's a steadiness in that. And here, of course, he uses terminology of business partnerships, business relationships. In 1792, William Carey published a treatise with a long title, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. Carey was arguing that we ought to be passionate about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, to every people group on the planet. And this was not a popular notion in William Carey's time. Matter of fact, Carey uh, was a cobbler. He, he, he was working a blue-collar job, but he had a growing heart for the nations of the world. He had a map that he had uh, over his workbench, and he was consistently challenged with that. And ultimately, he had a burden to go to India He was hearing about them, the masses of people in India, and he wanted to take the gospel to them. So he took this burden to his church, and they discouraged him from thinking about such things. They told him, if God wants to reach the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. And so in response, Kerry publishes this this little publication to call the church to missions. And eventually, Kerry would go to India And he would become known as the father of modern missions. He became a catalyst for a whole new generation of missionary activity. But there's a backstory here with William Carey. He told his good friend Andrew Fuller before he left, I will venture to go 
but remember that you must hold the ropes. Andrew Fuller was a pastor there in in England, and Fuller would go on to serve as the president of the Mission Society, and Fuller would travel throughout the British Isles, uh, raising funds, raising awareness, advocating for those who were serving on the front lines. And my friends, giving is one of the ways that we hold the ropes. One of the ways that we lock arms with BNA in North Africa, right? With the De Kriegers in Togo, West Africa, with L&L in Kosovo, and some challenging places of ministry. When we give, it's not just a financial transaction, but there is a solidarity and a commitment that is established. Our giving is about more than money. It's about relationships. There's a second perspective that Paul brings here in this text. That is that when we give, we assign value to the gospel. When we give, we assign value to the gospel. Now, it's interesting that Paul does not express his gratitude in a super overt, bombastic way. He doesn't say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. How could I ever repay you? I am forever in your debt. This isn't what Paul says, right? And I think there's reasons for that. In the first century context, to receive a monetary gift would have had certain implications. It would have indicated an inferior social status. It would generally mean that you were indebted to the donor. Paul's response here communicates something very significant about the nature of the relationship between Paul and the church in Philippi. Paul was not a charity case. Right? Notice what it says here. Verse 15, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. So what Paul describes here is a mutually beneficial exchange of goods and services. They had entered into an arrangement of giving and receiving, okay? Now, as far as we know, Paul didn't send any financial gifts back to Philippi. So in what sense did the Philippians receive something in return for their giving? In what sense was there a a mutual relationship here? In what sense was there reciprocity in the relationship? Well, I would suggest to you that the Philippians had received something very significant the gospel. Matter of fact, that's what Paul's getting at in verse 15 when he says that they had been marked by generosity. They had entered into this pattern of giving from the very beginning of the gospel, from the time when they first became acquainted with the gospel. That signal, that became a catalyst for generosity. Right? They were responding to the grace of God that they had received. Paul describes something similar here in Romans 15. Paul had been taking up a collection 
for the believers in Jerusalem. There was a severe famine in the area. So as Paul was out and about establishing churches among non-Jewish people, he was collecting money to send back to the church in Jerusalem. And he talks about the nature of that here in Romans 15. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they, sh- they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So Paul says, the Gentiles have received from the Jews the gospel, right? The, the scriptures were given to the Jewish people, the promise of the Messiah. The Messiah himself came through the line of the Jewish people, right? So the Gentiles have now shared in this spiritual blessing from the Jewish people. And it's only proper that the Jewish people should share in the material blessing of the Gentile people. So he's speaking of various types of currency, right? In this exchange of giving and receiving. And I think something similar is happening here in this text. When our group traveled to Israel earlier this year, we had a group of uh, 26 of us, we, we left a, a sizable tip for our Israeli guide, Boaz Shalgi. We worked it right into the cost, and uh, he, he did not send me a flowery thank you note for that gift that was a, a couple thousand dollars plus. But that was because our money was not a charitable contribution. Right? In other words, we received valuable service for that money. He provided a valuable service to us. And it would have been highly inappropriate for us to have not extended a tip to him. In a similar way, our giving is an appropriate response for all that we have received. When we give, we assign value to the gospel that has been extended to us. So don't think of the church as your charity case. Don't think that you are in this position of superiority, doing the church a favor by your giving. Sure hope that pastor doesn't forget my birthday this year. I just might withhold my giving, you know. Uh, This this should not be the, the, the thought process. But I think as we consider this perspective... This is a key to generous giving. You will never be inclined to give until you realize how much you have received. If you don't have a handle on that, then you're never going to be motivated towards generosity. If, you've, if your life has not been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if your sins have not been forgiven, if you've not been given a new hope and a new identity and a new purpose, then you'll, you'll never understand generous giving. <laughs> And if you don't understand generous giving, maybe that's an indication that you haven't fully understood the gospel. You haven't understood the extravagant nature of God's grace that's been extended to you. So our giving is about more than money. It's about reciprocity. It's about an appropriate response for all that we have received. So when we give, we express solidarity and commitment, and when we give, we assign value to the gospel. 
A third perspective, when we give, we meet needs. Paul says it here in verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul experienced certain deficits. There were certain costs involved in ministry, and these financial gifts helped to bridge the gap. This is probably the obvious one that we think about when we think about our giving, that I'm I'm helping provide or fill a need. Postumas. Prayed for already this morning. Uh, Andrew Postuma, our ministry partner in Romania, is on the left uh, in this picture with the big beard. And they are making multiple trips from Romania into Ukraine, to the border, uh, bringing back refugees. This has been going on for some time now. And this involves uh, fuel costs that are uh, much greater than what we are experiencing in our particular context. And uh, renting of vehicles. And then once they secure the refugees and get them back into safe places, then they have to provide for ongoing care, right? For food and different things. So there's a, there's a cost to all of this. And when we give, we help to meet those needs. And important for us to just realize that God has blessed us financially, not just to provide for our own needs, but to provide for the needs of others. Ephesians 4, Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So God gives you resources to provide for your basic needs, but he's also giving you, he's entrusting you with resources that he expects you to give to others to help meet their needs. This needs to be part of our mindsets. Our giving is about more than just money. It's about gospel impact. So Paul's helping them to connect the dots. They are helping the gospel to progress by their giving to the Apostle Paul. Number four. When we give, we make a solid long-term investment. When we give, we make a solid long-term investment. Paul says here that he wasn't looking for the gift. Notice verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. I'm not looking for a gift for my sake. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So he said, I don't want you to give for my sake, I want you to give for your sake. He actually uses a couple of different word pictures here, analogies. He wants their fruit to abound. So here's an agricultural picture, right? Uh, he says, I want you to, to cast the seed, uh, to give generously so that you might receive an abundant harvest, right? So that you would receive the fruit of the harvest. And then at the end there, verse 17, uh, he talks, he uses financial terminology. He wants their bank account to increase. Um, He says, I want, verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit or to your account or to your ledger. 
So uh, two concepts are obviously linked. If you have an abundant harvest in the ancient world, then you're going to turn a considerable profit, right? Your bottom line is going to be increased. So Paul wants them to prosper. Paul wants them to see their giving as the sowing of seed and the investing of resources. Now farming is hard work, right? Farmers have to have a long-term perspective. And we have to have that same perspective, right? I remember talking with my kids at different times and you get that little bit of babysitting money, that that little bit of lawn mowing money and you lay the money out on the counter and you talk about what you're going to give and boy, it's hard to part with that when there's not a steady income stream, right? But the Bible would have us think that I'm not just giving this away, I'm, I'm investing it for the future, so it's not that I'm never going to see it again. It's that I'm, I, I'm putting it aside. I'm delaying my gratification. I'm not going to use it right now. But I'm going to invest it in a way that I will receive it back with interest. So uh, this is the dynamic here. There's this gap in a farmer's world between planting and harvesting. But it is the only investment that has guaranteed returns. And it is a high interest investment when we invest in God's work. Principle is mentioned in a number of other places in the scriptures. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he, the Lord, will repay him for his deed. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And then 1 Timothy 6. Command the rich in this present age to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Jesus himself encouraged this kind of treasure mentality, right? Don't store up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust corrupt, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So Paul is using a similar worldview here to encourage them to invest. He's speaking as a financial advisor. He's encouraging them to put their money away, right, To, to, to invest it. So that they would experience increasing profits, compounding interest, and accumulating dividends. It's counterintuitive, but Paul is saying that the more we give, the more we gain. He's not preaching a health and wealth gospel. He's not assuring his readers that they will experience great material prosperity. That if you give $100, you'll receive $150 back. But he is assuring them of a great return on their investment in this life and in the life to come. This image might be familiar to you. Uh, This is from Mr. Holland's opus. Movies are a funny thing, but this is a top 10 for sure. If you haven't seen it yet, you should. There are some thematic elements, a little bit of language. But Glenn Holland was a high school music teacher, a gifted musician, who is toiling away with struggling students who are not all that interested in music. He listened to a lot of squeaky clarinets. And if you watch the movie, you'll hear a lot of squeaking clarinets, right? 
And he has this sort of sense of regret over him that his life has somehow been misspent, a bit wasted. He wanted to be a great composer, and he's got the work he's, uh, various musical pieces he's kind of working on on the side, but he's really laid that aside to, to make ends meet and to serve as a teacher. But there comes a point in the movie where he sees or at least catches a glimpse of the long-term impact of his actions. One of his students summarized it this way. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus. We are the music of your life. Very powerful scene where you begin to realize all of the time spent with these bungling students was producing some long-term impact, right? And Paul wants his readers here to understand the nature of giving. It's not just parting with your resources, but it's investing those resources for a great future harvest. So our giving is about more than money. It's about ultimate joy and reward. Final perspective. We present a pleasing offering to God. When we give, we present a pleasing offering to God. Verse 18 captures this. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul says, I received your gift. It was not only a gift to me, but it was a sweet offering that was presented to God. Several years ago, John Piper published a book entitled The Pleasures of God. And uh, he just went through the scriptures and traced all the places where it says that God was pleased or God was delighted. Uh, All the places where we see a smile on God's face. And this is one of those places. When we give generously, it brings a smile to the face of God. It's pleasing to him. The writer of the Hebrews uh, touches on it as well. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Again, there's the connection, right? When you give to this person, when you give to this particular ministry endeavor, you're not just giving to that person, but you are offering something to God, a sacrifice that brings him great joy. So our giving is about more than money. It's about worship. All of these perspectives uh, should shape and inform our giving. So I ask you as we close this morning, what is the current state of your giving? What is your current pattern in giving? Is giving a priority? And would your giving in any sense be characterized as generous giving? What would it look like to move the needle on your giving? To move toward greater generosity? And what cultural worldviews, if we peel back the onion a little bit, what cultural worldviews have you perhaps embraced? In what ways is your 
thinking distorted about money and possessions? In what way does your thinking about money need to change? Which of these five perspectives maybe do you need to revisit? You need to know that I'm not coming to you this morning with an axe to grind. As I said at the outset, we are coming off the best financial year in the history of the church. Inexplicably so. I'm incredibly proud of you for how you've responded over the last couple of years in the context of unique dynamics and challenges. I can say with the Apostle Paul, I am not seeking your gift. But I'm seeking the fruit that might be credited to your account. I want you to give, not for my sake, but for your sake. You enter into this great investment and that you stand to receive the return on investment that is graciously promised to us.